Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. You may or may not be familiar with an interview that John Lennon of the Beatles uh, did at, at some point early into their fame. Uh, it, it stirred up quite a bit of controversy, though I don't think he was being intentionally, maliciously provocative, uh, though it was a provocative statement. He said this in, the, in a more, uh, given more context to, to the, the short line that he's known for. He said, you know, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. We're, we, the Beatles, are more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Again, I don't think he was trying to be intentionally provocative. It's just how he saw it uh, from where he was sitting. And where was he sitting? Well, two years earlier, he and his bandmates had left Liverpool, England to come to the United States officially to cross over. To cross over into the United States. They landed at JFK in New York City to 3,000 people. Two days later, they're on the Ed Sullivan Show being watched by some 74 million people. Nearly half the population of the United States at the time. Needless to say, from that day forward, it's pretty, it was pretty clear that the Beatles did what they intended to do. They crossed over. They didn't just cross over the sea, right? They didn't just cross over from one shore to another. They were and now still remain to this day pop culture icons. They had truly crossed over and became something unforgettable. And these days, people don't say we're bigger than Jesus. What do they say? We're bigger than the Beatles. So John Lennon, I don't think he was totally wrong in what he said. Tonight, we have a story of crossing over. And again, it's not just a story of going from one shore to another. It's about something happening. It's about a transformation taking place, even though the people might not have seen it as such in the moment. It's not just about some slaves going from one shore to the other. It's, not, it's about a people going from hopelessness to salvation. It's about the birth of a people. It's about the birth of a nation. This is, this story right here, is the beginning of Israel itself. When they reconstitute themselves as this nation being led by their God. It's a story of salvation, but it's also a story of crossing over. So I want to look at three things here tonight. I want to look at crossing over's pattern, crossing over's paradox, and crossing, crossing over's proxy. And I'll be honest, I'm really proud of those points. Alliteration, people. That's why I went to seminary. Anyway, not true. But anyway, let's look at crossing over's pattern here. There's some, this is why we see crossing over's pattern in this story. This is one of the most remarkable miracles in all of the Bible. And it's actually held up in the Old Testament. It's repeated and cited explicitly some 25 times in the rest of the Old Testament. It's as a big a deal. This miracle is as big a deal to the Old Testament as the resurrection of Jesus is to the New Testament. This is a big story. This is a story that lasted for generations. They remembered it. All the Bible writers go back and process their present circumstances through what God did at the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea event was not the pattern. 
But it was actually, it was just a very memorable application of a pattern that we see in the entire history of redemption. Going forward some 40 years later, you have the people finally coming out of the wilderness and they're going to take the promised land. But before they go into the promised land, before Joshua, who takes over after Moses, before he can lead them into the promised land, guess what they have to do? They have to cross the Jordan River. And if you read there in Joshua 3 and 4, guess what happens in Joshua 3 and 4? The river Jordan is parted. And Israel walks into the promised land on dry ground. The parallels are striking, right? They're not led by a pillar of cloud and fire this time, but they're led by the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll read about later in this semester, actually. Once again, again, waters are parted and the people cross over on dry ground. If you go to the prophet Isaiah, a big, long prophetic book, Isaiah has a ton of allusions to the Red Sea. And I just want to read one of you. One of the most interesting ones comes in Isaiah 55. Listen to the prophet here. He says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you, Lord, who cut Rahab into pieces? I'll tell you who Rahab is in a second. Who pierced the dragon. This is weird, isn't it? Was it not you who dried up the sea? The waters of the great deep who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to guess what? Cross over. Was it not you who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over? It's an interesting passage there in Isaiah 51. Rahab, long story short, in ancient Near Eastern myths, Rahab was a sea monster. And in order for the gods or the supernatural forces at the beginning of all things to create, they had to subdue the sea monster first. And so what Isaiah is saying, he's borrowing from the ancient Near Eastern myths, and what he's telling the world is, it is Yahweh, it is the God of Israel who won that battle. It is that God, it is this God that subdued Rahab, that cut Rahab into pieces, that took, uh, that, that went into the chaos and brought order out of nothing. Um, And so what we see is that the the display of God's power at the Red Sea, Isaiah is saying is just further evidence of who this God is and that he's greater than any other God that there ever could be. And if you remember last week, we saw in Exodus 12, verse 12, that God himself said, I'm going to, on all the gods of Egypt, I'm going to execute judgments. So it wasn't just Pharaoh, it wasn't just Egypt, even on their gods, God says he was going to execute judgment. So again... The Red Sea here is not the pattern. It's an illustration of the pattern. It's a very vivid and very memorable illustration of the pattern. It's a pattern that you can actually see from creation all the way to consummation at the end of the Bible. The consummation of all things when God comes to restore all things again. Let me just mention a few of them. Go to Genesis 1 and you'll read that before God creates anything, the earth was formless and void and the spirit was hovering over what? The waters. Interesting. And it's from there that God brings order out of chaos. Is it any coincidence that in Genesis 6 through 9, God determines to judge the entire world? He repents that he's made man because man's heart is evil and only does evil. And so he judges the world. And how does he judge the world? With water. He unleashes the chaotic forces of water in judgment that he might bring order from chaos once again. 
Jump all the way ahead to Revelation 4 and Revelation 21. We're explicitly told that before the throne of God in Revelation 4 and in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21, there is no sea. Now, does that mean we're not going to get pretty long walks by the beach in heaven? No. You're beginning to see where, what the sea meant in the Jewish mind. It was a symbol of chaos, of disorder, and God ruled over it. If you go to the Gospels, right, when Jesus is asleep in the boat during the storm and the disciples are freaking out, and finally Jesus wakes up and he tells the storm and the waves to be still, and immediately they were still. And do you remember the disciples, how they feel? We're told that they're more terrified after he stilled the storm than they were before it. As they say to themselves, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So there's a pattern here that the Red Sea account shows us vividly. And here it is. It's that this God is about the business of calling people from one type of existence to another. This God is about the business of calling people to cross over. We looked at Philippians last semester. And towards the end of that letter, you'll remember that Paul said, right, do not be anxious about anything. And we talked about how, man, that's really easy of you to say, Paul. And it's interesting that Greek word for anxious actually means to be divided apart, to be pulled apart. And we talked about it and we considered this. Any of us that knows anxiety in any form, we know that that definition fits, right? It's to feel like we are being pulled apart. It's to feel like we are falling to pieces, to be pulled in a million directions, to be coming undone at the seams. And you look at the story to this point, we've seen this miraculous salvation already accomplished. And just days after their rescue, the Hebrew people are filled with anxiety. They feel like they're being pulled apart and they don't know which direction to go. But as we've already seen in the story, there is a pattern on display that God always has a greater salvation in view than the one that we usually see right in front of us. And guess what he's going to do? He's not going to stop until he gets there. And so the question for us at the outset is for us, like the Hebrew people in this moment, what is it going to take for us in our own lives, in our own circumstances, in the, in the things that rock our boats, in the things that pull us apart? What is it going to take for us to be reminded that there's a pattern. There's a, there's a God who has worked the same way from the time he created until the time he comes again. And, the, what, and what he continues to do is show up over and over and over again and do the same things because he's faithful and because he never changes. And his grace and his truth and his righteousness and his holiness, those things never change. And there's a lot of you, you grew up in the church or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you're like, you know, I know that's true. Why do I forget it? And that's a question for us to wrestle with. Why do we forget it? It's a question that the Israelites are going to have to wrestle with for centuries to come as they continually forget and forget and forget. How will we be reminded that there's a pattern to be reminded of? And I think what we're being encouraged because this story so vividly and memorably takes up the pattern is we're being told, take up the story. And again, that's why I love this theme and why I keep bringing it up every week. Because what do we do at RUF every single week? We take up the story. 
Because what we're trying to say is that we know that we need it. We know that there's never a day that we're not going to need it. We know that I'm actually going to need it more tomorrow than I need it right now. And I hope I remember that tomorrow. Take up the story that we might see what crossing over's pattern looks like. Well, let's move on here to crossing over's paradox. Crossing over's paradox. And there's at least three here that I just want to highlight. And the first one's this, because crossing over, there's this pattern that God's faithful and that there's a greater salvation in view and that he's going to complete it. But some of this stuff doesn't seem to flow with that. Some of this doesn't seem to logically flow. And the first one is this. You see at the outset of the chapter, right? They are led to where they end up. They are led to an dead end against the sea. Some estimates of, say that Israel probably numbered about 2 million people. And so now they've, they've turned this corner and it's so obvious that, it, that it's a bad spot to be that Pharaoh looks and says, look, they're lost. Let's go get them. How did they get there? God took them there. What is he doing? God is the one that tells them to camp by the sea. God is the one that backs them into a corner with the most powerful army in the world marching and breathing down their neck. So what it seems like as you read it, the paradox is that it seems like God has set them up for catastrophic failure. And they feel that. They feel the weight of that. That's why they freak out. And so here it is. Sometimes God's leading does not make sense. And I, I feel like I say this a lot, and I hope you hear it, and I hope as you read the Bible for yourself, sometimes you say, there are hard things in the Bible. There's hard things in the Old Testament. There's hard things in the New Testament. Just ask some of the ladies that have been going to the Wednesday night Romans study. There's hard things there. And read something like Romans 9 and then Romans 10. Romans 9 where God says He chooses people. And then Romans 10 where Paul says, but how will you be saved unless you believe? And you're like, well, which one is it, Paul? Didn't mean to open that can of worms, but to say this, the Bible never says this should just make sense to you. If there's a Christian that's saying that to you, I would encourage you to tell them, go read their Bible a little bit more. Nowhere in the Bible does God say this should just make sense to you. Sometimes God's leading does not make sense. But what again, what we've already seen even in this story is that there is always a greater salvation uh, in view when it comes to God. And he's not going to stop until he brings it to completion. And so for some of you, this paradox hits close to home, right? Because maybe college has had some bright spots for you. But on the whole, when you really think about it, and when you try to explain to people how you're doing, maybe back home. What you really want to say is that really it's just been a vast wilderness, And you felt lost more times than you felt like you knew where you were going. Dead end after dead end, maybe failure after failure, maybe. And you just keep wondering which way is up, which way is forward, which way is the I don't even know which way is backward. I can't even tell you if I'm going backward or not. Others of you, you you can't escape this feeling no matter how long you've been in college, no matter how long you've been away from home, no matter what's happened in your life since then, you can't escape this feeling that there's something in your past because it makes no sense, it must have been meaningless. And so you either say to yourself, the answer is that I've just got to suck it up and move on or I'm just supposed to forget about it. A lot of you, 
You know, I know the feeling as we get closer to spring break. A lot of you can't seem to see past next week, much less how are you going to be able to comprehend what God is doing in your life and where he's taking you. Took me to Ole Miss of all places. So um, what's he doing in your life? Second paradox here. So the first paradox is God's leading. Seems, seems to not flow, not to jive with the story of salvation. The second paradox is the people's complaint. They freak out. Look at verse 11 there. They're even being like sarcastic. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt? What is Egypt known for all these thousands of years later? Massive graves. They're being sarcastic even at this point. So they stop at this point and they only see two options in their life. Either we die here or we go back and be slaves in Egypt. They have no category that there's another one, that there's another option. That's all they see. And this is yet another instance. Again, you read through the Old Testament and it's a yet another instance where we look at this and we go, man, I just find it hard to comprehend this level of unbelief, especially after what we saw happen last week in the 10th plague, right? We see the redeemed people of God, redeemed and rescued by mighty acts of judgment, covered by the blood of the Lamb. And then days later, they are flipping out, thinking God's just going to leave them. And it doesn't really make sense to us, but I really want you to press yourself. Is it really so hard for us to see how Israel would do this? It's going to be easier for you to think of people like, people back home or people in that church or this church when I say these things, but I want you to put yourself in it. Have we not seen how we ourselves, the church, have done the exact same thing when it comes to politics? I know if you're anything like me, you're tired of it. You're tired of the politics dominating what's supposed to be maybe spiritual and Christian things. But we do the same thing, don't we? Maybe have you not seen this in yourself or others when the breakup happened? That there just seems to be no other way that your life is going to go now that could be positive at all. Have you not seen a past mistake that you've made in your life haunt you to the degree that you feel as if it will always mark you for the rest of your life? We do this. We do this, and there's so many more things that we do it with. But there's another thing I think we need to see, bigger picture here, and it's this. The vast majority of us, I'm not going to say all of us, But I think it's safe to say the vast majority of us in this room have no idea what it's like to be part of a people group that has never tasted hope of any kind. That is where the people of Israel are. Hope is not a category for them. Slavery is. And that's it. The vast majority of us have led incredibly comfortable lives. I'll just be honest with you. When I hear conversations about privilege, it doesn't bother me because I know that it applies to me. I know that it applies to me because I know that when anything in my life ever gets hard, I hate it. Because I'm not used to things being hard in my life. And I think we all need to own that a little bit. We're no less prone to freak out just like they did. The third paradox is Pharaoh. Because here's the question. Hadn't God defeated him already? 
killed all the firstborn, even killed Pharaoh's firstborn. And Pharaoh was broken after it. He's like, just, just leave, please. So what's, what's going on here? And again, we read, this is not the first time we've read it. Verse 4, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And then as the story goes, we see um, the cloud goes between the people of Israel and the, and the people of Egypt and separates them, just like it did at the ninth plague when the darkness and the light were separated. This is then followed by mass death, just like the 10th plague. And so what's going on here? Just like the plagues, the Red Sea is God's perfect judgment against Pharaoh, who, if you remember at the outset of the story, desired to drown the firstborn of Israel. And so you see, here's the grand paradox. The Red Sea is a story of perfect and complete salvation. But at the exact same time, it is a story of complete and exact judgment. Both of them are true at the same time. God meets every action of Pharaoh with a perfect reaction in judgment. And really, the the part that we should be cautious about is that the Bible actually says that every action of every single one of us, no matter how small, will be met with a perfect reaction. One day. That's a warning and it's cause for concern for all of us that every one of our deeds will be measured on the last day. That is a promise. What do we do with that? Well, here's an interesting, the paradox continues. It's also a reason to feel more secure. Now, how does that work? Look at verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. And then I love verse uh, 14 there. You have only to be silent. The literal Hebrew is just shut up. Just shh. I do that to my kids all the time. Shh, 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 shh. I did it to bully in the video too. Um, This is what God's saying and what he's driving home and what he's going to continue to drive home. Either I am the one who accomplishes salvation or it's not salvation. And I'm going to make sure you learn that. Either I am the one who does this thing, salvation, Or it's not salvation. And this is what I want to offer to you. To close out this point. You will never truly understand the gospel. And you will truly never understand grace. Until you come to grips with the fact that what God says in verse 13 is the biggest barrier to faith for you. From the hardest working of you to the laziest of you, it's all of our problem. That the biggest barrier to faith for us is that God says, stand firm, stand still. Just stay there. Just watch. Just look at me. Meaning all attempts, all of your attempts at self-help, have got to stop 
meaning that you must abandon every impulse that you have ever had to be self-sufficient. And you've got to come to grips with the fact that you do not want to do that. None of us do. Important qualifier here. This does not mean do nothing. Far from it. It's actually asking you, it's actually demanding that you do the most impossible thing you could be asked to do. To give up faith in yourself. To let go of it. And to turn and put it in God. That's the demand. That's the command. That's the invitation, right? One commentator put it like this. If Israel had not found itself here baffled, terrified, helpless, there would never have been a final defeat of the power that had enslaved them. If Israel had not found themselves here, right here, in the way that made them freak out, there never would have been victory over the power that had enslaved them. And by the end of it, what do we see they're doing? They're fearing the Lord and believing in him. And so a scary question might be, what's the dead end that God is going to have to bring you to for you to finally freak out? And to finally look at yourself and say, you know what? I don't have this. And I don't know what to do. Could I just encourage you, if you're sitting there going, I know that's exactly where I am. You're in the right place promise let's wrap it up with this the final one crossing overs proxy this is not really a familiar uh thing anymore but i've seen it done before if you've ever been to a wedding rehearsal sometimes at a wedding rehearsal they'll have a proxy a bridal proxy a stand-in a girl that walks down the aisle with the father that stands where the bride's supposed to stand next to the groom so that the bride doesn't take part in it so she can sit back and watch and because traditionally it was considered bad luck for the bride uh, to go through the ceremony until it was the actual ceremony here's the thing about crossing over we can't do it ourselves that's the thing We have impossible circumstance, the wilderness of our sin. We have clouded vision because we, without God, we have no hope in the world. We have a real and present enemy, Satan himself, who crouches at the door waiting to devour us, the New Testament tells us. But what this story and the rest of the story will continue to tell us is we have a proxy. We have a stand-in. We have one that has gone before us, that will go before us. Look at verse 15. It's so funny because God, God looks at Moses before Moses even said anything. says, why are you crying to me? Why is Moses praying to God? Because Moses represents the people to God. But go forward. Look at verse 16. It's like, obviously, it's God who parts the water here, right? And it's God who gets the credit for parting the water in the rest of the Bible. But who does it in the story? Moses does. You lift up your hand, you lift up your staff, and you separate the water. And then if you look at verse 26, when we didn't read, when the Egyptians come through, God tells Moses again, stretch out your hand that the sea and the water may come back on them. So God represents, I mean, Moses represents the people to God, but what does he also do? He represents God 
to the people. Moses is the stand-in. Moses is the go-between. Moses is, in this story, what we call a type of Jesus. Someone who prefigures Jesus. Deuteronomy 18, we have God promising, I will raise up for them a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. Yet, in Deuteronomy 34, we read, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. God promised He's going to raise one up. In representing the people to God and God to the people, Moses was a type, he was a symbol, prefiguring one who was greater, one who would come, one who was going to be completely man, yet at the same time, completely God. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's an interesting way to put this event, right? He likens it to Christian baptism. Baptism, a sign and seal that we have left the old way of life. And are entering into a new mode of existence. That we go under, undergo our own exodus from a way of life in this world to another way of life in Christ. Such a weird way to, to link it, right? But here's what you have to see. This story is not about facing our own Red Seas. That would be a faulty application. This story is no more about facing your own Red Seas as it is about what to do when you stand at the banks of the Mississippi River. The only Red Sea experience that matters was the one Jesus went through. When he didn't just pass through water, he passed through death itself and he emerged victorious on the other side. You see, this is what baptism points us to. This is why it's so beautiful. Your baptism, our baptism, it's not about something we have done. I'm not trying to poo-poo on anything here, but baptism is not about you. It's about what God has done. It's about how God has acted on your behalf and covered you. It's about what he has done. It's about the victory that he has won and how that salvation is now the defining characteristic of your life. And to know that is to know this, that the wilderness that we all, look, we all find ourselves in wildernesses at times. But to know this is to know that the wilderness is but only a short path to glory It's to know that all the desperation and despair that I experience in this life is but a passing through the waters that will not and cannot overcome me. It's a passing through the fire and the flames cannot touch me. It's to know that everything wrong will ultimately be made right, even when it doesn't make sense. It is to know that my tears, though they are real and though they sting at times, they will be turned into joy. It's to know that one day I will truly see with unbeclouded eyes. To be a Christian is to know 
that what is pictured in baptism is that you have already had your exodus experience in Jesus. Because Paul goes so far to say in Romans that we died a death like his and we have been raised to new life like his. Already happened. It's true. It's real. It's ultimate. It's ours. Something really interesting, I think, that Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, he says this. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes me has, guess what? Crossed over from death to life. Whoever hears my word and believes me has crossed over from death to life. And so again, imagine it, what it must have been like that day. And now hear this, wherever you find yourself freaking out or confused or sad or broken, many have gone before you feeling the same thing. And God himself and Jesus himself went before you feeling the same thing. And so the question is, have you crossed over? Because what you're being told here and what the gospel is telling you is that the way is open and he is there waiting for you on the other side. It is a guarantee. It's a story of salvation. It's real. It's here. It's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray and ask that you would lead us, that you would land us, as we often sing, safe on Canaan's side. Bid our anxious fears goodbye. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.